when it comes to airway, I'm probably more focused on those older children, age four years and up. So when I have a child of that age that has poor breathing and sleep, first thing I want to do is just rule out, do they need an ENT referral? So for instance, if they had kissing tonsils, I'm probably going to refer to an ENT. And then the other thing that I want to look at is can they breathe well with their lips closed? So if we say, for instance, put a paddle pop in between their two lips and they can keep breathing quite comfortably, I'm going to focus more on other interventions apart from ENT. Hi, I'm Shelley. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Hi, Shelly. It's getting cold. It is getting cold. I'm not ready. Not either. I've turned the heat up multiple times this last weekend, and it makes me sad every time I do it. I refuse. I will put three sweaters on. I will wear my winter socks. <laughs> I haven't touched wearing, it yet. <laughs> you know, I'm already wearing slippers in my house, and I'm like, uh, I don't want to. Oh. Question for you, Maria Have you ever heard or read the book? Breathe, sleep, and thrive. Discover how airway health can unlock your child's greater health, learning, and potential. I have not read that book. I'll put it on the list, though. I'm reading it right now. I mean, I bought it a long time ago, and it went on my pile of books to read that never seemed to get shorter. <laughs> but this week's guest is actually the author, Dr. Lim. Oh, very cool. Yeah, she's a dentist based in Australia, actually. And her specialty is tongue tie management, specifically early intercepted orthodontics and myofunctional therapy in airway issues. What did you say it was? Breathe, sleep, thrive? Yeah. It's so good. I mean, it's it's in like more of an academic book, yeah. but it's really good. And she talks a lot. I'm still in the, towards the beginning of the book, but she talks a lot about how airway issues like sleep apnea, open mouth breathing, all of that, that is often related to tongue ties and high palates yeah. can cause like behavioral issues yeah. in children in that. She mentions that there's multiple studies showing that a lot of cases of ADHD in children mm. is actually misdiagnosed and it's actually sleep or airway issues mm. that's causing them to have hyperactive activity mm. because they're not sleeping well. Right. And their brains are not getting the full amount of oxygen overnight. So they can't concentrate. So it looks like ED. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I cannot wait to interview her. Yeah, that's going to be a cool one. So I was looking at this article. It's the one I accidentally sent you instead of this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely on top of things tonight. That's okay. It'll be a great article to read. I can't wait. So the FDA is weighing the possibilities and parameter of experimenting with artificial wounds for premature human babies. I know I've heard the talk about that for years now. Mm-hmm. I, I love the idea because obviously, yes, for premature babies, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. And it makes me nervous. And I can't really pinpoint why it makes me nervous. Well, I think there are ethical considerations 
that need to be considered because it could start off with just like, oh, we're just going to help the preemie babies and then kind of turn into something else. Yeah. Yeah. So the article says the pediatric advisory committee will cover regulations and ethics considerations around creating an artificial womb. And then they will also consider what clinical trials for this will look like. So yeah, part of me is super excited about this and what it could mean for saving babies. And then the other part of me is thinking of like black mirror type situation where, or yeah, or I mean, women's bodies are already like so regulated. And now we're trying to replace a part of our body. I, d- I don't know. I, there's a connection in my brain there and it's hard for me to vocalize, but it feels threatening. But at the same time, I know there's tons of women out there that are like, yeah, I don't want to carry a baby. <laughs> let, let somebody else do that or let this artificial womb do that. But then I feel like, again, we're just adding more regulation to women's bodies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels it's like a big gray blob area yeah Yeah, super weird we'll see yeah it'll be exciting to see what they decide and i will link to that article in the show notes and now let's do our question of the week this week's question is how much solid food should my 11th month old baby be eating oh yeah that's a good question i mean if you're doing baby led weaning which is, you know, you're, as you're adding in complementary foods, you're cutting back on breast milk or breastfeeding. But I feel like at 11 months old, a good majority of their meals should be food. Mm-hmm. And just depending on your family, you can, you can still always breastfeed first because at 11 months old, they're going to need more calories any, anyway. And kind of let your baby decide how much food they want. Yeah. I don't think we need to like say my baby needs this specific amount of food. If you're still, you know, breastfeeding on demand and adding in complementary foods as kind of recommended, then your baby will be smarter than you think and actually will be pretty good at self-regulating that that food intake. Mm -hmm. So you can always start with smaller quantities. And then if they're reaching for more, they've, you know, they've cleared their space and they're reaching for more, you can always give them more. I'm always the proponent of start small and build from there, right? Because it helps babies learn to not overeat, maybe take their time a little bit and really learn to acknowledge those feelings of satiety and not stuff themselves full. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as long as, you know, and. It's different if your baby is having trouble eating solids, right? So if you're trying to feed your baby solids and they're gagging or choking or refusing, that would be different. And you'd want to seek out assistance with a professional for that. But if in general, your baby's doing well eating solid foods, yeah, yeah, letting them take the lead is great. If you're worried about the amount of breast milk they're getting, then you can continue to like breastfeed before you offer the solid foods. But 11 month old should be, you know, eating pretty, a good am- amount of solid foods, like at least three meals a day. Yeah, I was going to say Probably maybe some quant- snacks. quantifying it, it would be better. So definitely three meals a day. They should definitely mm-hmm. have like a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then kind of gauging snacks from there. Every kid mm-hmm. is going to be a different kind of snacker, right? 
So you might have a kid that's maybe not super interested in snacks, but really likes to have bigger meals. And then maybe likes to have little like breast milk sips in between. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you have a kid that doesn't really do a whole lot in one sitting, but likes to nibble throughout the day. Grazer. Grazers. Morgan is mm-hmm. Morgan would be a grazer if I let her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she would definitely <laughs> Hunter was more of a grazer because he was just he was always on the go. He didn't want to sit down. Right. Yeah. So he like swing by the table, grab a handful of car- carrots, be yeah. gone for another 10 minutes, swing yeah. back. And yeah. At, Morgan likes to power eat between like when she gets home from school and dinner time. She has like 15 snacks if she can <laughs> for that whole time. It's like, did you, did you not eat? Like, What's happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. If you would like us to answer a question on the podcast, you can DM me on Instagram at Shelly Taft IBCLC and we will answer your question here. This week, we have Dr. Shereen Lim to talk all about airway issues, jaw development, and facial oral development in infants and babies and into adulthood. Dr. Lim is a Perth-based dentist with a postgraduate diploma in dental sleep medicine from the University of Western Australia. She has been involved in the team management of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea since 2011. Dr. Lim is dedicated to promoting airway health from infancy as an alternative approach to minimizing the the development of these problems. And as the author of the book, Breathe, Sleep, Thrive, discover how airway health can unlock your child's greater health, learning, and potential. Her work in private practice is restricted to tongue-tie management from infancy to adulthood, early interceptive orthodontics, and myofunctional therapy. Welcome, Dr. Lim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm a general dentist and I became involved with snoring and sleep apnea because of my husband's snoring. Uh, so that really kind of drove me pretty crazy. And one night out of frustration, I got out of bed, started Googling up the mandibular advancement devices or the dental devices that can help with snoring. And I became one of Australia's first dentists to qualify in dental sleep medicine. I thought I was going to help other spouses that were in the same boat. And after becoming involved with managing these problems, I started to recognize, hmm, we can actually deal with this a lot earlier. We're actually providing a solution that is helping to band-aid poor jaw development. Why don't we grow the jaws better in the first place? And so that's when I became really interested in early interceptive orthodontics, because we can do this in young children and modify their jaw growth. But the other thing that made me really become really interested in breastfeeding was understanding that the first year of jaw development is the the most rapid period of jaw development and the most modifiable influence is how we feed our children. So breastfeeding, it is the number one thing that we can do to or modify to improve lower jaw development and develop the palate well. And so that's really why I became interested in all these things. How can we prevent the onset of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea through good jaw development? Right, because treating it as an adult is much harder than just preventing it when you're working with a baby or a child. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of adult solutions or mainstream solutions tend to be Band-Aid solutions. We have things like CPAP or dental devices, and they're really things that only work well during sleep. They help keep your airway open. And if we want to try to restore proper airway health or breathing day and nighttime, we've really got to go to jaw surgeries in adults, which are more ex- extensive and complicated, uh, and not everyone wants to do that. So 
it's quite despairing because when you get to that time when people are suffering with all the consequences, many of them having very poor quality of life, really with brain fog, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and they're really not feeling their best or their freshest and their general mood. It's quite despairing to know that this could have been prevented. We could have tried to change that trajectory very early on in childhood. And those early years of growth are the really most important because 60% of our jaws are developed by the age of six. And this seems to be the key concept in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, so I wrote the book really because I wanted people to understand these developmental origins of these adult problems and how we can actually change that trajectory. One of the problems that I see is in orthodontic treatment, we're so focused on crooked teeth. How do we address crooked teeth? We take out teeth and then we use braces to straighten the teeth and we overlook the poor jaw development. Why don't we get the jaws growing on a better track? So I wanted to be able to help parents understand that. But even still, when we have poor jaw development, there are signs and symptoms and red flags very early on from infancy. So we have our best opportunity to alter oral function because form follows function. If we have poor jaw development, it's actually a symptom of poor oral function because those muscles of our mouth and our face, they actually stimulate the way how the jaws grow. And so I really wanted people to recognize that. And at the same time, how do they recognize the early signs of breathing problems in children? Because when children are not breathing well, they're not getting optimal sleep. And then we're having problems like ADHD type behaviors and all these other symptoms when children don't sleep well, learning social emotional problems, difficulties with emotional regulation. And many of them get missed. They get missed as normal childhood behaviors. And if we can look at some of those adults that have obstructive sleep apnea and look back, we can see these warning signs, you know, the difficulties with attention and concentration and all these problems where they were not functioning optimally during childhood. So how can we get all parents to recognize this? And I love the fact that you bring up because something I preach in my practice all the time is common does not mean normal. So is it common to have a lot of toddlers and young children who are snoring and open mouth breathing and have recessed jaws? Yes, but that doesn't make it normal. And what I like about in your book, you you go through like a brief history. You talk a lot about how like breastfeeding is one of the best things that you can do for jaw development and the difference in the jaw movement and the tongue movement between breast and bottle feeding. But one of the things you also talk about is how our jaws and our palates and our teeth have changed as we eat different certain foods. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, well, cook a tea is becoming a more and more prevalent problem. And dental anthropologists who have looked at this have actually linked that to the the industrial revolution that where it became much more prevalent around that time. So too soon a time to be considered a genetic change. And so they labeled it epigenetic, whereby there's a change in our environment that's influencing how our genes are expressed. And one of the large portions of that is the food that we eat because we started to eat more processed foods and also babies, they didn't have as much breastfeeding. They were introduced formula and bottles and, and pacifiers. So it's really altered the way that our muscles are working. We're not getting that greater stimulus of chewing to develop our jaw as well. And that's even seen within one generation in Indigenous populations where more processed foods are brought in and we have an immediate increase in crooked teeth in that next generation. So we know that we need to eat 
harder, more fibrous or less processed foods to get those jaw muscles working and that will help to develop good, strong bones. And unfortunately, if you look around, it's all pureed foods and food in pouches that you can just suck out. Yeah, that's something that I talk to in the families I work with a lot is like baby led weaning and avoiding those pouches. You don't want to avoid soft and pureed foods entirely, but really encouraging chewing. So if you're saying that you can spot signs that there could be a potential airway or jaw development issue when you have a baby or even a toddler, what are the signs and symptoms that parents should watch for when it comes to airway issues in their infants or young children? And how can they differentiate between normal newborn behaviors and potential breathing problems? Well, the signs of airway problems, well, we want to parents to recognize that it is normal to breathe through the nose. So babies usually do breathe their nose, but we also want the lips sealed because if the lips are not sealed, that child will become a mouth breather. So looking for that nasal breathing, closed lip seal, I think, I don't know if you're familiar with Michelle Price Emanuel's uh, sleeping tongue posture hold, where if we have a baby, we can sort of gently close their jaw up to get their lips together and we want to sort of test that their tongue is sitting to the roof of the mouth. That is the most ideal. We want to avoid pacifier use because we want that tongue up. We actually don't want to introduce the pacifier, especially for a long periods of time because that's going to interfere with the tongue posture. Because for good breathing, we want the tongue lightly suctioned to the roof of the mouth. So any baby that has a reliance on a pacifier, there, there's an underlying issue I believe so that's something that needs to be explored as well generally speaking we want children to close their mouth breathe through their nose be quite still they shouldn't be restless or appear too active while they're sleeping they should be quite silent so we don't want to hear any noise because any noise could be an indicator that there is increased resistance to airflow and not too much sweating because that could be a sign of disturbed breathing and sleep as well so they're, they're what we would want to look out for in an infant. I yeah, think I love that. And that, that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. And that yeah. is one of the things that, you know, when a family walks into my office, I'm immediately looking at the baby in the car seat, seeing does baby have mouth open or closed? Is baby like continuously stuck in one position? And then the Michelle Emanuel's exercise is one of my favorite ones to give parents to. I do work with a lot of families who have the babies have recessed jaws and tongue ties. And so often because of the tongue tie or the high palate, their tongue is not making contact with their palate and their mouth just kind of like flops open. And you can see that it's not really causing very apparent issues at that moment. But as the child gets older, you'll often see those issues pop up, like you mentioned in your book. Mm -hmm. So why is it so important for babies and people in general to breathe through their nose? Like what's so bad about mouth breathing? Well, nature designed us to breathe through our nose. The nose is specially designed to be able to warm, filter, sterilize the air before it goes into our lungs. So it probably prepares the air It's the first line of defense against allergies and infections. So it it is more healthy to breathe through our nose. In addition, when we actually close our mouth, if you've ever tried to snore with your mouth closed versus mouth open, it's a lot harder to snore with your mouth closed. The airflow is just a lot smoother when we have our mouth sealed. But particularly important during childhood is that those muscle, the light muscle forces associated with 
closed mouth nasal breathing are going to stimulate better jaw development. When we have our mouth and our jaw closed and our tongue up, that tone is much better. And because the muscles, how we spend the most part of our day, like we spend the most part of our day breathing and sleeping, it's that period that's going to influence our jaw development the most. It's the light persistent forces. So that is the number one key thing that we need to do well to grow our jaw as well, to have closed mouth nasal breathing. Yes. Yes. And it's always amazing to me, even though I, I work in the field where I pay attention to these things and I I educate families about these things. You know, in one part of your book, you have a picture of a boy who had good facial development and then he got a gerbil, I believe it was, that he was allergic to. So he had constant congestion so sort of to mouth breathe. And the changes in his face are very apparent and obvious and kind of very surprising in such a short amount of time, how much mouth breathing and keeping your mouth open all the time can change your facial development. Yeah, definitely. So that that illustration was provided by Dr. John Mew. And basically when we mouth breathe, the majority of time we'll tend to have a downward and backward growth of our face. Pretty subtle, but as that jaw remains open, that's how the, the face grows. And then the palate will tend to be more narrow because the tongue is not sort of sealed and in contact with the palate to provide that expansive force. And this in turn becomes a risk factor for further development of sleep disturbed breathing. So it's a round and round situation where we need to kind of address this earlier. And if we have mouth breathing during childhood, there will be a deficit of facial growth. So it is important that we try to recover that through orthodontic treatment if we can. In your book, you mentioned a study that was done, I believe on 11,000 children. And it turns out that their sleep issues, no, they were diagnosed with ADHD, but it turns out a lot of them just had sleep issues due to airway issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that that study was part of the Avon Longitudinal Study. So there was 11,000 children followed up at various time points from birth up to seven years of age. And what they established was that children who had mouth breathing, snoring, or gasping during sleep in the earliest years of life, it was predictive of their chances of having behavioral or emotional problems. So, for instance, children who were most at risk were the children that had snoring, mouth breathing, or gasping around the 30-month mark. These children were more likely to have problems at age four and age seven. And so they could have outgrown those breathing problems after the 30 months. But it just demonstrated that 30 months seems to be a very critical period or window of brain development. And so that is the most important time we need to establish really good breathing because children will not necessarily grow out of those problems. They actually present later down the track. So if you, how can parents promote healthy airway development and closed mouth posture with their babies at a very young age? Yeah. So I think simple things like just being aware that it is important to try to have nasal breathing and try to help them seal their lips. That could be just a very simple thing to do. Another thing that I see quite a lot of is babies that present with a tongue thrust. They have their lower tongue posture and open mouth. And, you know, I've listened to some 
What I've learned is that a lot of it can be due to birth trauma as well, when we have impingement of the cranial nerves, which are around the base of the skull and the neck. There are a lot of nerves exiting there that are involved with suck, swallow and breathing, including motor nerve of the tongue. So sometimes through body work of, you know, cranial osteopathy, just releasing those strains can reduce the impingement of the nerves. So I've seen many children and their parents after the osteo treatment, they notice the tongue can move better. And even when I see adults that have tongue tie and they we send them to osteo, they can actually report the back of their tongue this better as well. So I think that's something that's really important with a lot of vacuum, forceps, delivery, really difficult deliveries, emergency C-sections, those type of things, to have that release because uh, it's not, not something that I knew about when my own children were little, to be able to do that and to allow things to function well. So I think that's one common reason. Allergy is obviously a big reason. So we want to make sure that if there's congestion, we can actually use the saline, over-the-counter saline sprays, they're non-medicated and the aspirator bulbs to actually suck out the congestion as well. I think there are some children. Some children are actually born with a narrow palate and that is a narrow nasal passage and they're going to be more prone to developing mouth breathing. So we have to be careful of that because sometimes there will be children that no matter what we do, sleeping tongue posture, etc., they can't close their mouth. And I don't think parents should get overly panicked. It's just good to be aware of because they're still very young. But then when the time comes around age six months, we want to actually promote good chewing because we don't want that uh, low muscle tone to persist. We want to try to stimulate it as much as we can. So definitely things like baby lead weaning and not overdoing the processed foods, introducing foods with texture as well as the BB munchie. I really love the Maya munchie for babies. They can actually put it in their mouth and have good chewing practice. They're using the back of their jaws and, and chewing. So I really love that as an option. And then realistically, a lot of children will end up needing palate expansion to address that high arch palate. And I'm happy to do that as early as four years because I know that that is a risk factor and it's quite impactful when we actually expand to be able to promote better breathing and sleep for children. And in my practice, it's kind of like a catch-22 because I do see nobody comes to see me because things are going well, right? They only come to see me because things are not going well. So a lot of the majority of babies in my practice that I see do have high palates and do have like tongue ties and recessed jaws. So we want them to breastfeed if the parent wants to, to help develop the facial and oral development. But all of those issues cause trouble with breastfeeding too. So you're trying to breastfeed to kind of help with these issues in their oral facial development, but those issues itself makes it hard to breastfeed. So it can be quite like a frustrating cycle where you have to you have to address those issues from the beginning so that you can get breastfeeding off to a good start and that will help with that development. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And I think that there is no magic bullet that we do one thing and everything is going to be perfect. There's so many factors. And a lot of the time when I'm helping with the breastfeeding, I actually want things to function as best as they can. But to be realistic with parents, there is still going to be some deficit. And during the years, next few years, if we're aware of that, there is other things that we can do, like the, you know, avoiding pacifiers or introducing the hard foods and, and myofunctional therapy, different things that we can do to optimize that as children grow older. Yeah, because a lot of the time when babies have a high arch pellet, it's actually a reflection that there has been oral dysfunction, even in utero. 
their second solo has been altered. And no matter what we do, you know, even if we do a tongue tie release, for instance, to help promote better feeding, there will be some deficit of function. It's not reasonable to expect that everything will function perfectly all of a sudden because we've released this tongue tie. Baby has not a magic wand. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, how can we help them right now? Maybe make it easier over the next few years. But there are other things that we need to address to optimize it. At the end of the day, as children grow older, it's important that we try to get the whole tongue lightly suctioned to the roof of the mouth. And we may not necessarily, I think a lot of parents think, oh, if we do this tongue tie release or optimize the feeding, that everything's great. But in my observation, no, we do need to optimize things and we need to be realistic that we can't fix everything right now and not to stress too much. As long as we're really alert to it, there's going to be a lot of opportunity if we pick things up during infancy. Mm-hmm. Awareness is the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I counsel my families with as well. Like if there is a tongue tie and we are opting to get it released because we don't always, I counsel them like this is the first step. Like this is not something that's going to fix everything overnight, but it gives the tongue the ability to move. And then we can start working on how can we improve the function and the and the movement otherwise. Absolutely. Some people do believe it's just going to wave a magic wand and fix everything. And it hardly ever goes that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So if does tummy time play a part here? I cannot say that I am super expert at tummy time, but yeah, definitely. I work with a lactation consultant who helps to promote the tummy time. And I think that is a really good stretch that will help with the wound healing as well. Yeah, so I I don't know the ins and outs of tummy time, the big deal. But yes, I believe that it plays a really important part. And it's a good marker if a child is not doing tummy time well, it may be predictive of other issues down the track with other aspects of their development. So one thing that I do know is when I do tongue tie release, it can be helpful for some children to do better tummy time. They're just more comfortable with it. So when we do that release and it frees up that neck tension, that, that's about the extent of my knowledge of tummy time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, but I think you nailed it with what you said. Like it, it definitely helps encourages good movement and one of the things that we can do to help a baby release tension especially after release it's just move encourage movement Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in your book you talk about upper airway resistance syndrome can you tell us what that is yeah definitely because modern healthcare focuses very much on obstructive sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea is an end-stage problem it's very arbitrary definition you have to stop breathing for 10 seconds or more five times, at least five times per hour of sleep as an adult to get a diagnosis of that. So by the time we've got obstructive sleep apnea, it may be called mild obstructive sleep apnea, but it's mild of a very severe problem. Whereas if we focus on that, we're really missing those precursor forms, the more subtle forms that are still quite disruptive and they still have increased risk of disturbed sleep and all the consequences that go with it. So with upper airway resistance syndrome, what it is, it's Instead of having apneas or hypopneas, which are 10-second obstructions, what's actually happening is the fight-or-flight response or the sympathetic nervous system is in very responsive to any signs of airway collapse. And there's an arousal from sleep or a, a stress response. There may even be teeth grinding just to reopen up the airway. And it 
is protective. Like people don't fall into that 10-second obstruction. But what's happening is they're actually just working really hard to work harder to breathe to keep that airway open. And so instead of getting oxygen deprivation, they're actually getting very disturbed sleep, disturbed breathing and sleep. And so they're not getting the full restorative benefits of sleep. And so children will present with poor attention and concentration, all the other problems that they would have with obstructive sleep apnea. It's just that they don't meet those numbers for diagnosis. And I think it's really important that we recognize this problem because if a child has a sleep study and this says no sleep apnea, but they're still snoring, they're still having behavioral difficulties or difficulties regulating their emotional, emotional regulation, uh, emotions, we need to actually make sure that they are still breathing well. And they don't have these precursor forms. And even as adults, there's very clear problems associated with upper airway resistance syndrome, problems like insomnia, where it's just not relaxing to go to sleep subconsciously. And there are people that have difficulties to go to sleep. So a lot of children with this may be prescribed melatonin, when really actually they don't really want to, sleep is not restful for them. So they don't really want to enter sleep. But for adults, yeah, they'll have things like irritable bowel syndrome. Anxiety, or even for children, you know, TMJ problems with their jaw joint and jaw muscles. And a lot of those functional somatic syndromes, chronic fatigue syndrome, things that uh, there seems to be a lot more pain and suffering associated with a very small stimulus that you wouldn't expect that people would suffer with. But the nervous system is just in high alert and they're getting exaggerated responses. So, yeah, I think that's what upper airway resistance syndrome is. Its symptoms can be indistinguishable from OSA. It just hasn't met that criteria because people are working too hard to breathe. So it's often like missing, that huge component is missed because they don't you know, feel the sleep apnea test. It sounds exhausting, uh, to be honest, when you were describing it. Like it doesn't sound like people with this get any sleep at all. Yeah, and it, you know, it... it the people that get missed the most are going to be children and premenopausal females or just slim individuals because people think sleep apnea is for older men. And so it, it would get very overlooked. But yes, it's very despairing. People come in with these symptoms that are very classic and no one's really looking at this issue. And it really is a craniofacial problem in that the jaws aren't developing well. And a lot of the time, the tongue is not well toned. And if we can kind of address it early, we can spare people a lot of years of poor quality sleep. You mentioned already that a sign of sleep and airway issues is the open mouth breathing, the snoring. You mentioned that, you know, they should be quiet in their sleep and not restless. Any other symptoms that might alert to a parent to that there might be something going on? Like I know from my knowledge, like, if a child always sleeps on their stomach because it kind of opens their airway up a little easier, or if a baby's always sleeping with his head extended up to open up their airway, would you agree that those are other symptoms that parents can look for? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention that earlier when we were back on that topic, but definitely when we have a neck hyperextension, it's a way for us to keep our airway open. And a lot of the time when People sleep on their stomach. I'm questioning, what is their tongue doing? Where is their tongue sitting? Because a lot of the time, those people will have low tongue posture. So when they're 
on their backs and their tongue is not properly suctioned to the roof of the mouth, their tongue is more prone to obstructing the back of their throat. And so when we sleep on our stomach, it's actually quite protective. It keeps our tongue from collapsing into the airway. So yeah, a lot of children who sleep on their tummy or sometimes bum in the air, there could be a red flag that they're not breathing well. And that could actually be helping them breathe better. Mm-hmm. And then what about reclined sleeping? Because you always have the stereotypical image of, you know, an, an older man who's snoring and they tend to sleep or fall asleep a lot in the recliner in front of the TV and they prefer to sleep there. And I've always wondered if it's because that incline position makes it easier for the airway or is that not the right direction to head? Yeah, I think if we're on our back, if we're sleeping on our back, that is going to be the worst position. In fact, some people experience these problems mainly when they're on their back and when they're on their side, they don't tend to. And so a lot of the time, you know, if a husband's snoring, you sort of kick them over to the side because it's better for their breathing. So yes, definitely position is important. It can affect the way that we breathe and sleep. When you are working with a family who has an infant or a young child that they are concerned about, that there might be something going on with airway issues, do you have a process where you investigate certain things first when it comes to like causes and what to do going forward in terms of treatment? Do you start off with like, okay, we need to address any tongue ties or anything like that? Is there like a process you go through? Yeah, for infants that are, I'm not really hugely assessing infant airway a lot of people infants that come to me is going to be for infant feeding problems and so a lot of the time if a child is not sleeping well one of the common issues is going to be reflux symptoms yeah when they're swallowing and sucking too much air so yeah definitely we want to if they're sucking a lot of air and they're very uncomfortable we want to address that and rule that out and often that can help child sleep better and maybe even rely less on a pacifier But when it comes to airway, I'm probably more focused on those older children, age four years and up. So when I have a child of that age that has poor breathing and sleep, first thing I want to do is just rule out, do they need an ENT referral? So for instance, if they have kissing tonsils, I'm probably going to refer to an ENT. And then the other thing that I want to look at is, can they breathe well with their lips closed? So if we say, for instance, put a paddle pop between their two lips and they can keep breathing quite comfortably, I'm going to focus more on other interventions apart from ENT. So, for instance, palate expansion is going to be my next go-to option because I know that when we widen a child's palate, it actually widens the nasal floor, it remodels the nasal airway, it allows air to flow better, and a lot of children can breathe easier through their nose, and it makes more tongue space. And when we make more tongue space and have more room for the tongue, it can actually adopt a better position higher in the roof of the mouth, which is also good for breathing. So I, I believe that... A lot of the time, if a child is having problems and they've got a narrow palate, I want to, where possible, from that age where I know it's possible to do so, to do orthodontic treatment first. Because within six weeks, we can get a really good idea, is this going to be helpful? Can we avoid an ENT surgery? But the children that I won't do that is really those children with the obstructive tonsils because they're going to not comply so well with palate expansion if we put something else inside their mouth. So palate expansion. Expansion is really one intervention that I'm really big on and it's very central in our practice. And then once we've restored the structure through ENT surgery or palate expansion or combination of both, we need to then work on the muscle patterns and restoring nasal breathing. So helping children close their mouth, helping them to strengthen their tongue so that it can adopt a light suction to the palate position. And sometimes then 
we need to do Tangtai release to ensure that more of the tongue has that mobility to sit higher in the roof of the mouth. And that will typically come last because I want to get the palate widened and the airway all structure all good before we try to do a lot of therapy to ensure that we have enough space for everything to work really well. So, yeah, it is very multifactorial. There are some children that will have allergies and may need further management. But generally speaking, the more we can promote nasal breathing, the better children will function and manage with their allergy symptoms. So it sounds like, is that when you bring in the, like the myofunctional therapy after that, after you've expanded the palate and everything? Yes. Yeah. I tend to do focus more on myofunctional therapy after, but we may introduce a little bit, a few different habits, corrections prior to make sure that children will function better during the expansion process. So yeah, but a lot of the time I will focus a lot more after because I think myofunctional therapy is very compliance-based. Yes. <laughs> Whereas palate expansion is maybe less so. It's very mechanical. It works. You turn a key every night, it's going to expand. It happens really quick. We can get the biggest impact. I think that if we can focus on those very predictable things, it's just easier to comply with the myofunctional therapy after. It generally, in my point of view. So it sounds like you're you're a big fan of working collaboratively with other healthcare professionals and addressing the issues as a team. Like you bring in the ENT, myofunctional therapists, things like that. I think that's the way that things should be done. I mean, for instance, with a lot of my infants that I'm working with, my lactation consultants and my body workers, we're very collaborative. I think it may be less so in my community for those older children. I get a ton of referrals, not so much from ENT, but I will still work there to ENT. So I I don't collaborate with them in that close sense that I do for the infants. But yeah, I think they play a really important role in making sure that our treatments are going to work. And also, yeah, it's never really a one solution fits all children. And some children will need multiple things. So it's really important that we get more people on board with this because a lot of the time people, parents think that their child has a surgery, they're going to be cured. And an ENT surgeon may not discuss other options that are adjuncts to improve the stability of their results. They might think that a child is all clear after they've done surgery. So we do really need to be able to discuss this closely and work together more integratively because a lot of children have one treatment and it doesn't solve the problem. But I think the end goal really should be to restore nasal breathing, close mouth and tongue up. On average, how long does the the treatment process take? It is like six weeks, six to nine weeks. Oh, that's fast. Yes, that's correct. But then we usually need a child to keep wearing the expander without turning it after that treatment because the results will relapse if we don't address the underlying muscle dysfunctions. And so how long does it take before we get children out of the expander? That is variable because we need to restore those patterns through myofunctional therapy, more compliant space. Some parents are very busy and it's hard to make progress with that. And so it will be very dependent on each child, but that bit is going to be a longer process. And I usually let parents know upfront that we're going to be trying to recreate new habits and we can expect that we want to work on them continuously. It could be a good 18 months. That bit of treatment is going to take more awareness and reinforcement and time. So it sounds like it can be very individual depending on 
the family and the situation they're in. Yeah, the age of the child, how important the child is, lots of factors. Do you have like a success story that you can share? I know it's a little difficult with the healthcare due to privacy, but is there like a general success story that you share with families? Oh, I, I'm always sharing various success stories. So <laughs> my Facebook page is Dr. Shree Lim. So I always share success stories there. And I, I'm not sure who can I single out right now. But I think for me, what really feels successful is people that have sought treatment many different places, been told, oh, these are things that your child will outgrow normal, but parents knowing that their child has a problem and they're persistent about looking for answers and then to come here and many times even travelling very far, you know, flying in, flying out, to then be able to find that for the first time that they've got an answer, they've got a clear direction, things are making a difference for their child within a few months. I can think of a lot of I can think of a lot of children, but I think that's really what is satisfying for me to know that we can give a parent clarity and make them feel hopeful that they're able to enjoy their child again. Their ch- child is so much easier to manage. The whole family dynamic has changed because their child is getting a better night's sleep and they're coping better throughout the day. I think those type of stories are really what satisfy me the most. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And 100% because I work with a lot of families as well who they're concerned. They know their instinct, their gut is telling them like something's not quite right. And then when they go to the pediatrician, their concerns are dismissed. So they're told that what their baby is doing is normal, what their child is doing is normal. And then when they see a provider who's like, well, actually this is what's going on, the relief that they feel just because they know like, okay, I was right. My instincts were right. Something is going on. So they love that you can do that for them and that they have that experience with you. I think that what is quite sad a lot of the time is that it will happen at least once a week along those lines, is that a parent might bring their child in for one thing, whether it's a speech issue or a snoring issue, behavioural issue, and then we kind of look back at all the things that have happened during infancy and we can actually link it to a tongue tie. And the parent will be like, I knew there was something wrong. And then they'll just start crying because it's like the first time that someone has listened to them. And that is really quite upsetting. And then the parent feels so much guilt about this, wishing that they could have done better for their child. So I do think that really integratively, whether we're a lactation consultant, speech pathologist, ENT, we've really all got to start looking with a more open mind and being aware of these issues very early on. It would just save a lot of hardship for people and parents and the whole family. Yeah. And just listening, just listening to the family and taking their concerns seriously. And I I come across that a lot too in my practice. Well, they will learn about like the symptoms that their infant or young toddlers experiencing and say, well, my first did that or my first, oh, Mm. wow. Like all of these checklists of symptoms my toddler has all of these and I had all of these and they learn that they have a tongue tie or a high palate. And you can see that it's not that they're happy that they have all these issues, but they have that they have the answer. Because sometimes just knowing why can bring such a relief to families. Yeah, absolutely. To know that they're not crazy, that they're not a yes. thinker parent. Yeah. 
Yeah, because a lot of parents are treated, you know, especially first time parents, they're like, oh, you just worry too much. You're you're an anxious first time parent. But our parenting instincts are on point for most of us. So we should listen to them. Are there any specific resources or support groups that you recommend for families who want to learn more about these topics? How can they connect with you? Where can they find you? Yeah, I am most active on Facebook. So that is Dr. Shireen Lim. And I have a website with the same name. But yeah, definitely the book. You know, I, I really put a lot of time into that to try to make it more relatable to parents, to be able to connect the dots from everything from breastfeeding, infant feeding to palate expansion, tongue ties, and really what are the problems downstream, down the track into adulthood, those despairing problems in adulthood that really spurred me to be able to learn more. And for adults, how can we recreate the right structure and function even as an adult? So I I do think that is one of the best places to connect a lot of dots together. In terms of support groups, I mean, there's so many support groups now on Facebook, isn't there? There's tongue-tie groups. There's even a group called the Child Palette Expanded Group as well. So I love that parents are talking to each other to find answers because I do think that is what helps many of them to get the right treatments that are going to put their children on track. Yeah. And I love that you're so active on the social media. I love that you have your book out. So you're telling, because I imagine in your practice, it must be frustrating to see adults come to you with all these issues and you know, that could all have been or mostly prevented if it had been spotted sooner in their life. And you're just getting that message out there. And it's so important. Yeah, for sure. Because I try not to see adults as much now, not to, I don't take as many snoring and sleep apnea referrals because I find it really difficult. I do think a lot of the time these adults need palate expansion. That is like getting to the root of the issue to make more tongue space and to help restore nasal breathing. But I still get adults with tongue tie release and they come in and those adults that have chronic neck tension, headaches, all originating from this overuse of these other muscles because their tongue is restricted. And I would say probably about one third of the time, I'm not going to be able to do tongue-tie release because that person's mouth is too small. They've had orthodontic treatment, had taken teeth removed to alleviate dental crowding, everything's shrunk. They're already not breathing and sleeping well. And if we release that tongue, it's actually going to aggravate the problem because we're sort of unleashing a six-foot tiger into a three-foot cage, which is the title of Dr. Felix Lau's book. I like that analogy. And so, yeah, that's very despairing for me to think, oh, my gosh, they're so restricted. They're really not functioning. They're having so much pain. They're really suffering. But their mouth, it's not big enough. And we don't have enough providers that will do that for adults. They're still long. Yeah, so it is despairing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This is such an important topic that parents should be aware of, at least, so that they can look for these symptoms in their own children. And I really appreciate you talking to about it. And I appreciate all your work with your book and your Facebook page. I wish there were more providers like you out there. For sure, Shelley. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And also as lactation consultants, I love that passion that comes from educating those families and putting them on the right track to guide them for the future of their child as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. 
If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Bye.